Um, yeah, there you go. Everyone wants to go to Brandon's table now. Um, so, yeah, I want to take a moment just, just also to thank Kelly. Kelly's awesome. Isn't Kelly awesome? The fact that, you know, she's back there, she serves. I, I feel like she's kind of like what keeps the community. You know, we're a small church, and there's lots of great things that come with small churches, that sense of community. And she does all that stuff by our potlucks and everything else. Even little things like, hey, let's just get him a cake. And she's like, yeah, no, we're going to get something for him. I mean, Kelly just cares about people, and so I appreciate you. Thank you so much for all you do, Kelly, for all of us. So, you're the best. He's going to go. Okay, well, uh, you should, you'll notice that if you're here in the building that we have our roundtables that are set up, which is different than on a normal Sunday. Uh, once a year, we go through our roundtable sermon series where we have a shortened sermon that's only about 15 minutes long, and then we spend the next amount of time where we sit and talk about it together. It's a great way to learn in a different way, right? Usually, the person who's preaching will come up with examples from their life or what happened uh, this past week. Well, now it's a chance for us all to kind of learn and kind of share from each one of our lives. So that's exciting. We're going to be spending the next several weeks going over just two verses in the Bible, it's Exodus 34, and we're talking about the character of God. We, here, we see in this Bible verse, we see the very first description of God's character. You see, if you start in the book of Genesis and you read up until Exodus here, you see God doing a lot of things. You see him creating. You see him interacting with humanity. You see him in his actions, but this is the first time that we actually hear about his character, and it's God himself describing his character to us for the very first time. So take a moment and think about this. If I were to ask you, describe God's character, how would you describe it? Somebody were to knock on your door, or you were talking to a coworker or something, and says, you know, I know that you go to church, you worship God, well, what is God's character like? Take a moment and think about that answer. Well, I think over the next several weeks, we're going to be learning and have a lot of things to say about his character at the end of this. So this verse here that we're going to go ahead and take a look at, this verse, Exodus 34, 6, through, or 6 and 7, it is quoted more than any other uh, Bible verse in the Bible. Some 25 times elsewhere in the Bible, this verse is quoted. In fact, I've preached on several different occasions where I'm preaching a passage and this verse actually comes up. I would describe it as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, right? Kind of the John 3.16 is almost a thesis statement of the New Testament. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It kind of takes the entire New Testament and boils it down to one verse, right? God so loved the world, he sent his Son, that whoever believes in him won't die but go to heaven. Well, this passage we're looking at really is the thesis statement for the Old Testament. You can almost draw every story that we see in the Old Testament to this verse. 
So let's go ahead and we'll read it here as we continue on. Exodus 34, verse 6. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's quite an interesting passage we have here, isn't it? When you read it, it's, it is a very beautiful and poetic passage. There's lots of things here that talk about his character. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, forgiving. I feel like, can we go to verse 7 here? I feel like I would probably like, can we go to verse 7? There we go. I feel like I would probably like it if it kind of ended um, right there after maintaining love to thousands and forgiving witnesses rebellious and sin. End, right? I feel like it would sit a lot better in my soul without this last part. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about. Um, as I was reflecting on this passage, I want to worship a God who is just. And I want to worship a God who will punish the guilty. I mean, if, if you were oppressed, I'm talking really oppressed, not the way that we talk about oppressed in the West, in the U.S. nowadays. I'm talking about if you were, you know, a situation like God's people were when they were in Egypt and they were born into slavery and they had evil men and women over them who subjected them, in that time, I would want to pray to a God who would defend me, right, stick up for me, and punish those who are perpetrating evil, right? So there's an element of we want to worship a God who will find guilty, who are oppressing those, and will stand up and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And yet, I think there's also a side of me that when I look back at my life and the times that I've been guilty and doing things against other people, I'm not so sure I want to be on that end of God's uh, standing up for the oppressed, right? If I'm the oppressor. So it's this weird duality that we see in God's character here, that we want it sometimes, but we don't always want it, especially when it's towards us. And then we get to the passage here where it talks about punishing the children and the children's children for the sins of the parents. Um, Is that what this verse is talking about here? Does that seem fair to, to a loving God who's gracious, compassionate? How does that like, makes sense. It kind of goes against common sense about what God would want to do. You know, there's a, a common belief in the ancient Near East that you see in other passages of Scripture where people of those days believed that every child or everyone born, that you bore the sin of your parents. In fact, there are passages in Scripture where somebody was born uh, with a disease or something from a little age, and they would ask and say, well, what was the sin that the parents actually did? It would be around. You know, what's fascinating is that every time we see that thought in Scripture, God comes against it, and he says, absolutely not. 
that I won't punish children for the sins of their fathers. There's an entire chapter of the Bible in Ezekiel 18. It talks about this concept. Let me just read a little passage from there. Ezekiel 18, 19 through 20 says, Yet you ask, why does the son not share in the guilt of his father? Meaning that God has decided to stop this. And everyone who worshiped God would say, that's not fair. The son should actually be punished for the sins of their fathers. And this is what God says. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of his parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of the child. So when we read this passage about his character, seemingly there's contradictions, right? We see this passage, and it's hard for us to make sense of it, especially when we compare it to other scriptures. So like, what is going on? What is there something that in this one passage in Exodus that is actually beginning to happen, that actually is causing us to, um, to think and try to understand what this passage is trying to get at? You know, one thing that I believe is key for us to understand this passage is to look at the surrounding context. That's what I kind of wanted to do today and as we introduce this theme, since we're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about this and this character. Because once we understand the context of what's happening all around this passage, it actually will make a lot more sense what God is meaning here when he talks about his standing and being just and upright. You know, in my journey of studying the Bible, um, I, over the past maybe five years or so, have been discovering the power of the Old Testament. When I first started studying the Bible in Bible college and I took Greek and Hebrew, I'll be honest, I never got past the point where Hebrew looked like chicken scratch to me. Like I had a hard time reading it. Greek made sense. It's very logical. It's very in line and just understanding. And I just thought, man, all the power is with Jesus in the New Testament. But then as I begin to study the word more and understand the themes and the beauty in the Old Testament, I've just been drawn there. I mean, if you've been going to the church for any length of time, or if you look, pull up our podcast, you'll notice I preached out of the Old Testament more than the New Testament. I just am drawn to the beauty and the power. You know, one of the things that I love about the Old Testament, it, the New Testament tells us this in Corinthians, is that the stories in the Old Testament aren't just history. They are history. We believe it happened. But Paul tells us that what the God's people went through are stories and examples for us. So as we read about God's people, we can identify with God's people. That's why I'm just drawn to it and love it. So by way of background to our passage today, we see that God has chosen this people, and yet they were sold into slavery to the Egyptians. We see that in, in Genesis much the same way that if we are God's people, we become slaves to sin and bondage. And there's, has anyone ever tried to escape your own sin before? Yeah. There's not much you could do the same way God's people couldn't escape slavery. And God sent someone to save them, a mediator, to come and free his people. He sent Moses in the Old Testament. And he sent Jesus to help lead us out of sin and slavery. 
And so we see God's people get free from Egypt, go across the Red Sea, and then right after that, in Exodus 19, they go to a place called Mount Sinai. So before, if you know the story at all, there's a period of time where they wander, but they're at Mount Sinai right after being freed from slavery for a year at the base of this mountain. And this is where God decides, I'm going to create a covenant. I'm going to go ahead and formalize this relationship where I will be your God and you will be my people. So they're there at this, uh, this like ceremony that takes place over the course of a year. It's, it's a very serious commitment that God's choosing, right? And so at this time, Moses goes up and he gives his Ten Commandments. And he also tells them how to build the Ark of the Covenant, where God will dwell. It's almost kind of like if... Uh, you had a marriage ceremony. Now there's lots of pomp and circumstance, but usually, uh, at least a judicial way of doing marriages, you will have, at that time, kind of laying the groundwork, right? For richer, for poorer, you know, better, for worse, and kind of all these things. You kind of lay the groundwork for what will actually be in the marriage. Similarly, God says, hey, I will fulfill my end of the covenant. Here are the rules and the laws that you must live by. And so he lays all this out, with God's people. Moses comes down and asks everybody, hey, are we sure we want to do this? We sure we want to get in relationship with God? This is what it will mean. And everybody was like, absolutely, let's do it. Yahweh saved us. Let's go ahead and do it. Moses comes back up the mountain to formalize it. We're in the middle of a wedding ceremony, kind of not a wedding, but a picture of this covenant thing. And in that moment, the people do something weird. Moses is taking a little too long a time up there on the mountain. They're in the middle of the ceremony, formalizing their covenant with God. And they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go ahead and make an idol, a golden calf, and we're going to worship it. They're going to take all the bits of jewelry, all the stuff that God wanted to use to build the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to use all that gold and make a calf, worship that. And then we see in Exodus, they do some weird uh, sexual things around the calf. Not really sure exactly what, but I'm glad we don't know. <laughs> they do this weird ceremony in the middle of Moses up on the mountain with the creator of the universe formalizing their covenant. This would be like the equivalent of during a wedding. If I'm standing here marrying somebody and in the middle of the ceremony, the man were to say, can we just have a moment? Just give me a second real quick. I'll be back in about 15 minutes. Drives home, has an affair, and comes back. Yep, just one more thing I had to do before I, we got married. Good to go now. We're cool, right? Like, how absurd would that be? That's exactly what God's people are doing here. That in the middle, like in the very beginning, the very beginning during the ceremony where they're saying, yes, we will do everything that God wanted to do, they cheat on God. And God, after you can imagine, is like, Moses, man, I'm done with your people. I'll just start over again just with you. Like, I want nothing to do with these people anymore. But Moses intercedes, and he says, God, you said that, you, that we would be your people. Forgive them. Again, G Moses kind of taking this mediator role, similar to what Jesus played in our life, that even though these people are super sinful, and even though, yeah, they messed up, like on, during the wedding ceremony, and they cheat on you, and Moses appeals to God, and God, in his loving graciousness, says, you know what? I'll go ahead and 
continue on in this covenant relationship. Not because you guys did anything great, not because you guys are worthy of it, but because I'm so gracious. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the love and what that would mean for God to forgive something like that and to continue forward? It's at this exact moment, kind of at the lowest, the lowest of the low, the worst sin that these people maybe would have ever done, it's at this moment that God gives these words. It's at that moment that God says this. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generation. You see, he's, when he's proclaiming this, he's proclaiming this to a group of guilty people. People who had just committed one of the worst sins you could possibly do. In fact, even today in Jewish tradition, for us a lot of the times we'll talk about Adam and Eve and Eve, them eating the fruit and how that enter, allowed sin to enter into humanity. I preached on that last week. Well, for the Jewish tradition, they actually look at this encounter of the golden calf. They look at that encounter, and they say that a lot of what they've suffered as a people are a direct result of that golden calf incident. It's kind of their own Adam and Eve story, that they still think about that and say, well, that has contributed to a lot of the problems of the Jewish people, our rebellion in those days. In the middle of that rebellion, in the middle of that, God says... I am slow to anger, and nothing that you did will cause me to get out of relationship with you. You can read it. What God is saying here is that, yeah, you guys are guilty. I punish those who are guilty, but because I'm so loving, so gracious and compassionate, I'm going to continue on and love you, not because of anything you did, but because of who I am. See, with this context, we realize that God is in this commitment for the long haul. He knows that each and every generation that comes after Israel in some way is going to betray him. In some way, everyone is going to turn against God. But he's saying, because I am so loving and compassionate, I will continue to be your God. I will continue to follow after you. If those who come after you, if your those decide to worship me, he's making it clear that every single generation will still be held accountable for their actions, and but it's a good thing that God is a loving God. There's also this contrast that we see in the language of a little bit of the wordplay that he maintained loves to thousands, but for three or four is that he'll punish. You contrast the idea that even though God is sometimes harsh, he does punish evil, that his love and what he does and his graciousness is so much greater. 
So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about God's character. And we're going to be spending actually two different weeks talking about this concept of God's wrath or God's anger. Because I'll tell you what, I think for me, it's one of the almost most hard to understand aspects of the Bible. How do you square the idea of the loving God, slow to anger, gracious and compassionate, but yet those times when God has to confront human evil? But today, as we go through, we're going to go ahead and break up into our round tables here. We have on the tables these sheets. Um, and we can go ahead and if you're at a table with only you know one or two people, we can go ahead and merge um, tables together. And we have three discussion questions that I like to discuss. So we'll go ahead and go through and do some discussion. At the very uh, end, I'll go ahead and kind of close us in about maybe about 15, 20 minutes or so. I'll close us in a prayer, but you guys, can, we can continue to keep talking and going through. Here's the best thing. Usually when we have a table, we ask that one person kind of takes the lead. Here's a little trick. If you're somebody who doesn't like to talk, it's actually great for you to be the one to lead the discussion because all you have to do is say, hey, Brandon, what do you think about this? <laughs> hey, Rachel, what do you think about this? So if you're someone who doesn't like to talk, why don't you uh, go ahead and be the one to facilitate the conversation here? But let's go ahead and take some time talking and sharing about these passages that we have here.